Okay, good evening, folks. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and this is session 131 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, and our seventh, I think, session on the Council of Elrond. I think we're making excellent progress, uh, because tonight we're going to come to the end. I'm very confident this is going to happen, because it happens at the end of the first slide. Uh, we're going to come to the end of Elrond's opening speech. And so one of the things that I'm going to be very interested to see, we've been talking about Elrond's secret agenda, right? Uh, not secret agenda in the sense that he has some plan that he's, uh, you know, some... some uh, uh, you know, underhanded plot afoot, but an agenda for the meeting that he doubtless has not distributed, but he clearly has a plan for how he wants the meeting to go. Uh, so, um, anyway, uh, that's, um, I, tonight I'm going to be, I, that, uh, agenda is going to receive its first challenge tonight. Uh, and, uh, I will be interested to see what you guys think about, the question, is this or is this not, in fact, going according to, uh, uh, to the plan uh, of, uh, of Elrond here? Um, <laughs> sorry, seeing people's comments. I think I am a little bit congested, though, yes, clearly not as congested as my son who sniffled his way through his whole stream this afternoon. Yeah, there you go. Um, Oh, yeah, I'm in the wrong layer. I, th I thought it was a little quiet around here. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah, I was noticing that. Um, okay, yeah, Bruin here, it's just you and me. It's all good, right? <laughs> we don't need anybody else. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Okay, let's see. Which one? Do I... uh, yeah, okay. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, Druid's Fire, for shepherding me there into the, the into the thing. Okay, um, let us. Uh, there we go. Okay, um, let's uh, let's move forward then into because I'm just, I'm going to jump jump straight into uh, Elrond's. Um, Elrond's final bit here. So you remember that he had just been emphasizing the decline of Numenor in Gondor, but he was also emphasizing the connection between Gondor, not only Gondor and Numenor, but Gondor and Valinor itself, right, through the White Tree. He was emphasizing the White Tree, uh, which connected uh, Gondor in general, Minas Tirith in particular, back to uh, not only Numenor, but to Elvenholm beyond that and to Valinor behind that. And then he winds up. Oh, hang on a second, JJ. You're so right. I totally forgot. Sorry, uh, I'm kind of spacey today. Totally forgot announcements. Hang on a second. Before I just about to start reading, but before I start reading, I do have an announcement this week, um, and that is uh, we have uh, uh, we're we've announced our second guest of honor for Mythmoot this year. I talked about Verlin Flieger and the release party for her new book that we're going to be doing at Mythmoot, and the special performance of the play that she wrote that we're going to be putting on, um, and that um, that uh, is going to be a whole lot of fun. Our 
other guest of honor that we are announcing this week uh, is Amy Sturgis. Uh, and uh, Amy Sturgis is a wonderful scholar and a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Uh, many of you who have uh, uh, taken or audited Signum courses over the years will know she uh, was able to lecture for Signum for several years. Uh, there are two things that we are excited about uh, with Amy's participation here. First, uh, that um, uh, she's going to be a guest of honor at Mythmoot, so she'll be coming and you'll be able to meet her, which is great. But the second thing is that Amy is coming back and she's going to be doing her first live lecture at Signum for several years, uh, and she's coming back in order to do a new version of her Star Wars course. Uh, she did a wonderful brilliant course on Star Wars uh, called The Force of Star Wars. But she did this back, I don't even remember the year, but like 2015, maybe 2016. Anyway, it was like the year that The Force Awakens came out, right? So The Force Awakens came out. She did in the fall, if I'm remembering correctly. And The Force Awakens came out like at the end of the semester, basically. Um, so, um, yeah, it was a long time ago. And obviously, a lot has happened in Star Wars world since, since that time. Uh, so we uh, uh, have enticed uh, Amy to come back and, and do another course with us. Uh, so she's doing uh, a, a reboot of, the, uh, of, of her Star Wars class now, looking back on all of the Star Wars stuff. And of course, Amy and her course covers not only the films uh, and the TV shows, but, but, uh, but many of the books as well. Uh, so she's really interested sort of in the entire uh, Star Wars phenomenon. Wonderful, wonderful class. It's been, uh, it's been one of our classics for the last five years, that, that course. Uh, and I'm very excited about that's running again. That's going to happen this coming summer. Uh, so uh, you'll be able to you could uh, you could audit it live if you just want to sit in on the lectures and and enjoy Amy's lectures and maybe participate in Q and A that she does there. Uh, that's going to be. Uh, so you can do a premiere audit. That's what that is for that. If you want to do a discussion audit where you can participate in the class and then actually also attend the discussion sections and, and uh, take part in the, in the Star Wars discussions that are going to be happening there, you can do that as well. Um, Anyway, so if you go to signumuniversity.org, you will see the links to our summer courses and uh, Amy's Star Wars classes there. So we've got, uh, uh, we've got this uh, double Amy Sturgis uh, uh, announcement uh, for tonight. Uh, both the, uh, the, and the, the, the registration is open. So if you want to sign up to audit, you can sign up right now. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, also her attendance at Mythmoot. So you'll get the chance to meet her and hang out with her in person and hear her speak uh, at Mythmoot this coming year. So anyhow, that's, um, uh, that's, that is my very exciting announcement. So thank you very much for reminding me to do announcements. And now back to the text, or rather, and now on to the text, which I almost got to, but stopped myself in the nick of time before I totally forgot. Uh, okay. So, yes, White Tree, Valinor, winding down. But in the wearing of the swift years of Middle-earth, the line of Meneldil, son of Anarion, failed, and the tree withered, and the blood of the Numenorians became mingled with that of lesser men. Then the watch upon the walls of Mordor slept, and dark things crept back to Gorgoroth. And on a time evil things came forth, and they took Minas Ithil and abode in it, and they made it into a place of dread, and it was called Minas Morgul, the Tower of Sorcery. Then Minas Anor was named anew Minas Tirith, the Tower of Guard, and these two cities were ever at war, but Osgiliath, which lay between, was deserted, and in its ruins shadows walked. So it has been for many lives of men, but the lords of Minas Tirith still fight on, 
defying our enemies, keeping the passage of the river from Argonoth to the sea. And now that part of the tale that I shall tell is drawn to its close. For in the days of Isildur the, ring, the ruling ring passed out of all knowledge, and the three were released from its dominion. But now in this latter day they are in peril once more, for to our sorrow the one has been found. Others shall speak of its finding, for in that I played small part. All right, let's focus on do the first paragraph first and second paragraph second. I know that's crazy, right? Um, first paragraph. So he's, on the one hand, kind of bringing us up to the present, right? Which seems sensible enough. But I want to... <laughs> I want to not make sort of assumptions there. Rather, why should he do that, right? What is Elrond's purpose in doing... Like, do we need a Gondorian history lesson here? Um, I mean, lots of things have happened over the course of the Third Age in lots of different realms, right? Why all of the focus on Gondor here, right? So that he's briefing everybody about this. And I think that there are several... Um, there are several... Uh, answers to that, right? Um, you could say that he's just kind of bringing closure to the story that he had been telling. Uh, obviously, the story of Isildur and the, the War of the Last Alliance was really important for setting up the story of the Ring, right? Which we're going to get. Um, but that's, you know, again, we had enough closure, right? So Isildur died and lost the ring and, uh, you know, everybody died. And, okay, um, we don't need to know the rest of this, right? He goes on after describing the taking of the ring from Sauron and its non-destruction, right? That was clearly an important thing that he was establishing as eyewitness, right? Establishing that better and more authoritatively than literally anybody else in the room could possibly have done. Uh, and then he is going to move forward, but he doesn't, um, uh, he doesn't stop there. He gives us this little mini history of Gondor. And again, why? Um, so yeah, for Dauntless, I'm thinking this has to be part of the thing, right? I, Fourth Dauntless says, if you know the ring has to go to Mordor, then information about the passes into Mordor could be relevant. Yeah, it seems pretty clear, right? One of the minimum conclusions that I would say that we could draw about his focus on Gondor and his little mini-history lesson on Gondor. Obviously, okay, okay, so it goes without saying. He has said it, right? And since he has said it, it therefore goes without saying that, bear with me, he thinks it worth being said, right? He thinks, for some reason, the people in this room need to know, need, he needs to make sure that they have some kind of basic history of Gondor and statement of where things currently are, right? So why? Why would he do that? Why would that be relevant? And one for Thoughtless clearly is. Elrond, I think, knows where we're headed, right? That's what, you know, I keep talking about, about Elrond's agenda, right? He knows where this meeting is ultimately going to go. The ring of power has to be sent to the fire, when he, Elrond, is going to say that later on in the council, I don't think that's extemporaneous, right? I think he woke up this morning knowing he was going to be making that speech sooner or later, right? Uh, so, um, okay, fine. Um, 
so for Thoughtless, I do agree that when we're, since we're going to be thinking about sending the ring south, it's important for us to have some working knowledge about that. But at the same time, none of those details are actually going to be relevant to any conversation they're going to have here in the council, right? No doubt there's going to be discussion, right? Discussion, which, by the way, we as readers, right, uh, we in the narrative are not going to be privileged to perceive, right? However, um, we can trust that there will be some nice in-depth discussions about the path they should take and how they should plan to get from Rivendell to, to Mount Doom, right? And obviously, people involved in that discussion should be briefed on the history of Condor and know the current state of things in the South. However, nobody with whom he's going to be having that conversation needs this speech right now, right? I mean, Aragorn, Gandalf, they know this stuff. It's not for their benefit that he's giving this, uh, this little history uh, of Gondor. Um, so, um, so, yeah. Now, Tony, I agree that he does also have to outline the scale of the danger that the world is in. Um, by establishing this sort of the state of things down in the south, right? That down by Mordor, where Sauron himself is dwelling, there is this sort of standoff, right? Gondor still stands, right? Um, Gondor is still, but it's waning. The White Tree is dead. The line of, you know, Meneldil has failed. Um, Minas Tirith still stands, but Gondor is, I mean, like, numerically, a third of what it was, right? At the very least, even just, like, in cities, that's true. There used to be Osgiliath, the great city in the middle, and then Minas Anor and Minas Ithil on either side, right? And now Osgiliath is a ruin. Um, it's deserted, and in its ruins, shadows walk. That's not a good look, right? And Minas Ithil has actually been turned against them, right? So that's even worse. Uh, so now not only do they not have those two strongholds, they don't, they, one of them is, is actually against them. And so uh, things are pretty desperate down in the south, right? Only that the one last fortress of Gondor, um, of, the, of the ancient classical for, uh, fortresses of Gondor in any case, only one stands against the enemy. So it's certainly true that that, um, that establishes the urgency of the situation, right? Um, and I think that that's, um, I think that that's true. Now, Mike, you're right. Mike says, I, I always forget just how much Gondor there still is to the south. Oh, absolutely. And Mike, I would say, actually, it's one of the things I'm really grateful uh, to Lotro for. There are several things that the Lord of the Rings Online has really done for, has really enriched my reading of the books. And that's one of them. Uh, several of them actually <laughs> involve uh, me being able to uh, sort of see the world, like by actually traveling my character around the world, which is in an, you know, it's not to scale, but it's in a consistent scale, at least itself, right? Um, and so wandering around in Gondor and, and going, you know, like... Uh, riding a horse from Dal Amroth up to Minas Tirith certainly has brought home to me uh, what in the text, if you just, I mean, just reading The Lord of the Rings, it is really easy to forget, uh, Mike, exactly as you say, how much Gondor there is down to the south. Um, 
but um, uh, anyway. Uh, uh, so yes, that's that is uh, that is that is certainly true. B- but again, nevertheless, it's not like you know uh, Losarnak and Lamadon are going to be able to you know hold back Sauron if Minas Tirith falls, right? Um, so nevertheless, that's still uh, um, that's still uh, obviously important. Um, I do agree. Let's see. Um, uh, Simon was saying, I still think it's for the elves present who couldn't be bothered to learn anything about the kingdoms of men. Very possibly. Very possibly. When I ask myself, for whose benefit is he giving this speech? Right? Um, I think it very possible that it's the elves present that he is, at least partially, that he's doing this, because many of them... I think about Galdor from the Havens. Really. Like, Galdor's been hanging out with Cirdan for goodness knows how long, out by the coast. How much does he really know about what's been going on? I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, seriously, in the world of Cirdan the Shipwright, does the fall of Gilgalad still count as, like, current events? You know, recent news? Um, is he even going to have noticed that? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but still, like, to what extent has he been ke- keeping up? with what's going on down in the south in Gondor, right? Um, and it seems to me very possible that he is... Um, uh, uh, that they need, uh, they need some refreshing on that. Um, I also would wonder how much Glowen has, you know, been keeping up with things, right? How much do the dwarves know about what goes on down in the south, because you certainly get the impression that there's very little communication uh, between, you know, the greater Erebor region and, you know, Gondor ways. Um, So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay, let's see. Um... Okay, good. Um, so let's see. Um, yeah, Tony, I agree. A bunch of those elves are are also probably more concerned with their imminent departures. Absolutely. In as much as many of the elves are focused uh, westward, right? Uh, are thinking about departure. Um, th- they likely. It's not at all curious to think that this, that they wouldn't really be paying very close attention to this. Um, uh, so, okay. Yeah. See, now, JJ, I'm not 100% sure of the answer to that question. If there's little to no contact with Gondor, with whom does Lake Town trade? Uh, the Elven King, clearly. There do seem to be other men who live south of Lake Town, but not necessarily Gondor, right? Um, uh, down by the lake, uh, and every, not the long lake, the big lake, not the long lake. Uh, um, Dorwinian, exactly, Tony, is what I'm thinking of. Um, uh, we know this, right? I mean, the Elven King drinks wine from there, which presumably he got through Lake Town, right? Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's, but Boromir says that, like, you know, in his lifetime, no boats have come down the river f- out of the north. So that seems... Now, he could be exaggerating, perhaps, or clueless himself, arguably. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I think that um, he... 
doesn't uh uh i think he's if if he's exaggerating he's only just exaggerating it's not i think that we should be imagining a thriving trade of which he is ignorant or which he is ignoring um but yes i certainly agree that uh angrist there's there does seem to be trade that goes on but uh, across the you know the the the, the east west direction right uh, from the arid luin da- across the dwarf road right through the shire and everything else um so um so yeah 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 no i i but exactly simon i, I don't i don't think boromir is uh i don't think that he is either going to be wholly ignorant of of the if it were true that there was lots of trade in fact uh with dale uh between dale and Minas Tirith, i don't think that boromir would be totally ignorant of it uh nor do i think that he would just lie about that um i don't think that lying is one of boromir's faults uh but anyway okay one other question, and sorry, it passed downstream here, so I'm not remembering who said it. JJ, it was you. Um, is he also setting up Aragorn? This is a leading one of my personal theories here as to why he's doing that. Why is he emphasizing Gondor in the first place? Because this is a... So, back up a few steps, right? Remember what this moment is going to look like to Elrond. That is, and by this moment, I mean the revelation of the One Ring, not just that it has been found, as he said, right, but that it's, that they have it, right, that, that, you know, he, you know, it's now under his roof and, you know, was found uh, by his ally Gandalf and, um, uh, and you know, so the the ring seems to have come to them and and, uh, now they have to do something about it. What does this mean for Elrond? Don't forget we have talked a little bit about his uh, father-in-law, fatherly-in-law, father-in-law-lee. Anyway, uh, whatever. His stipulation as father-in-law to Aragorn, or potential father-in-law, right? Um, that sense in which, in, uh, that when this moment comes, right? Um, this is the moment. We're coming to the end of the Third Age. Um, this is one of those great times, right, that is going to be happening now. The, 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 the struggle against Sauron is coming to its crisis. The ring has been found. That means it is time. It is time for the sword to be reforged. It is time for the heir of Elendil to be revealed. All of these things go together in Elrond's mind. We saw that, I mean, again, I, this is what I believe is in, is in Elrond's mind when he makes that stipulation. I'm only going to give my daughter... Uh, to the king of Arnor and Gondor reunited, right? Again, he's not, that that in that context. What I love about that about Elrond, like the thing that makes me love Elrond for saying that, is because although it has, and I've said this before, although it has the form of one of those cut down the largest tree in the forest with a herring kind of requirements that are so common with father-in-laws in in fairy tale traditions. Um, it's not, in fact, like that, right? It's, it's, it, 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 it takes part in that tradition, but it turns that tradition almost on its head, right? And instead of saying, I'm setting you a ludicrous or suicidal task, right, in order to prevent you marrying my daughter, instead he's saying, I am going to... I see your marriage to my daughter as part of the culmination of the... as, as part of the doom of the end of this age, right? If the good guys win, the capstone on our victory will be your marriage to my daughter, right? 
if we lose, it ain't going to matter. Anyway, nobody's marrying anybody if, if, if we lose. Right. Um, but, uh, uh, anyway, so, oh, hang on. We lost, you lost audio. Why would you lose audio? Huh? Okay. It looks like it's happening. It looks like audio is going fine on, uh, on Twitch. Hmm. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Yeah. Twitch, Twitch is fine. Okay, good. All right. So let me see what's happening on, uh, yeah. Okay. So everything seems fine on Discord too. Far as I can tell. Okay, so interesting. Sorry. Okay, so apparently I'm experiencing some kind of strange technical difficulties. And I say strange because I see no evidence that it's happening. Though I believe you all, or all of those. Um, how odd. Yeah, let's see. Um, okay. But one or two of you can hear me on Discord? That's really strange. Very, very weird. Um, let's see. Hang on a second. I will try. I'm trying the classic maneuver. I, uh, Discord apparently is flaking out on me. Don't know what's happening there. Um... Uh, So I'm uh, turning it off, turning it back on again. <laughs> okay. Can you guys hear me now? Okay. All right. Here we go. Turn it back. Turn it off and turn it back on again. No idea. But still, Twitch folks, still okay? Right? Still hearing me on Twitch okay? Looks like it. I mean, all of my systems appear to be go. No. No. Okay. <laughs> just bizarre just bizarre like half of the people seem to be able to hear me or not hear me so weird um okay hey yeah, exactly Tony this is the fun of uh, of live events right okay yeah, so if you can't hear me in Discord, leave and come back again. And apparently that fixes it. No idea what the problem is. Okay, excellent. Anyway, let me go on then. What was I talking about? I was talking about... Uh, let me see. Tracing back. I was talking about Aragorn and Elrond. Right, okay. So, as I said, Elrond sees this whole thing as part of the as part of the big picture, right? Um, and so I think that it's... I think that it's clear that he has a couple different goals, right, for the meeting, right? On his agenda, clearly. The, re the reveal of the ring and the explanation of how we know this is the ring and everything, he's going to... He's, gonna, he's already given the first step of that, right? 
and the rest of that is going to be presented as well. And then he knows they're going to have to decide what to do with the ring, and he kind of knows where he wants to push that conversation to, right? So that's the primary agenda item, and and he clearly has a plan for that, which he's um, uh, which he's which he's already setting up, right? He's already undertaking that. The secondary item on his agenda, I think, which I think we've already seen evidence for, is the reveal of Aragorn, right? And the uh, the the explanation of who Aragorn is, the revelation of his true identity and of his ultimate destiny, because I think that these two things are, again, are clearly associated in his mind, right? And I, I sort of suspect that um, Aragorn... Well, okay, no. I, I sort of suspect that Elrond... Again, to him, I think that the, these things are all connected, right? How do you know the end of the age is coming, right? How do you know that, that the, the hour of doom is approaching? Because all of these things are coming together, right? The hour is here. Aragorn's hour, the ring's hour, Sauron's hour, right? This is, this is where the doom of the world, you know, for the next age is going to be decided, right? And so... There's a sense in which I suspect that one of the things that he's presenting, sort of, especially I think perhaps for the elves, but one of the things in which I think he want that that I think he does want to convey uh, to to the room, right, to everybody in the council, is like, okay, this is not just a garden variety crisis, people, right? This is not just like a a political situation, right? Like, okay, there's a there's a threat. We're under threat from a potential invader, you know, out in the East. Uh, Sauron's back and it's bad news and, and we got to figure out how to fight against him. I think one of the things that Elrond is doing, because uh, remember, the meeting begins with bunches of people reporting, like, the crises that are happening in their own realms and thinking about the troubles and what we can do about them. And as we discussed before, it seems very likely that for most of the people in the room, that's what they thought that this council was going to be about. They've all come to, you know, they've come, many of them have come, most of them have come to seek the advice of Elrond in these things. And they're expecting him to give them advice on these things. And instead, what he's doing is saying, ultimately, what he's going to do is to say, let me put that stuff into context. Right. This is not at all uh, just about a sort of a local crisis. Right. Um, remember, like local crisis, local crises can get pretty big, like the fall of the North Kingdom was an example of a local crisis. Right. The, the, the destruction of Fornost uh, and the downfall of the North Kingdom. That was one uh, one of the example of one of these things that I'm calling a local crisis, right? The death of Celebrimbor uh, and the fall of the last Noldoran kingdom, you know, like you know that that's you know the last Feanorian kingdom certainly. Um, that also local crisis, right? The war that Sauron waged in his invasion of Eriador. Local crisis, right? That wasn't the an age-ending event. That wasn't the hour of doom. It was. I'm not saying it was good, right? Um, it was very serious, especially for Celebrimbor and many other people. Um, but still, it wasn't the. So, but I think one of the things that Elrond is going to be is one of one of his goals, right? One of his sort of overarching goals for the meeting is to 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 present the case, to make the argument. Y'all, we need to understand. This is one of those moments, right? This is not, this is not the war in Eriador. This is not the fall of Fornost. This is like the Battle of the Last Alliance, 
right? This is like the battle at Thangarodrum. And remember, those are the two battles that he explicitly recalled, right? He's already begun that frame in his little historical flashback, right? Um, exactly, Taweth. This is not just an hour of doom. This is, this is, well, okay, it's, it's just, just an hour of doom, not the hour of doom. Not the hour of doom in the sense of the history of the entire world, right? But in the sense of the history of this age, yes, this is the hour of doom in the third age, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the Mad Violinist says, is he uh, preparing to... If he is pre in preparing to introduce Aragorn to Gondor, is he also preparing Aragorn to be thrust forward? Yes, I think he is. Now, I do... I, you know, how much preparation does Aragorn need? I don't know. He's clearly giving Aragorn the green light, and I do think that he is... Um, um, he is setting up... Uh, uh, he is setting up the... Um, the um the reveal the 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 revelation right um uh yeah yeah um so okay anyway all of that said it does seem to me very likely that one of the primary reasons he is emphasizing the doom of the like decline of gondor here is to set up Aragorn, right? Um, because if everybody around the table, even those who have not been paying attention for the last couple of millennia, um, they, you know, for them to understand both where Gondor came from, right? Not only the greatness of Isildur and Elendil and, and, and all that, but and not even just the greatness of Numenor, but all the way back to Valinor and the heritage there, right? As he just emphasized in the previous paragraph, where Gondor came from, but where the desperate, the comparatively desperate state that it is in now, right? The passing away of the glory of Gondor, the death of the white tree, the so, and, there, and therein the apparent, you know, shriveling the apparent loss of that link back to the elder days right and then there's going to be news right and that news is going to be aragorn right but the heir of the kingship is found we have here sitting around this table right now is the heir of isildur who can come down and forge this new link this new connection right uh to the glory of Gondor, right, by his descent from Isildur, right? But also, of course, the link back to the Elder Days. How? Well, through his marriage, right, to Arwen. Uh, he is going, that is going to be sort of the new, um, the new link back. Because as, you know, I've said many times, I can't remember how many times I said it in this class versus in other places, but this has been Elrond's job from the beginning. I mean, the role that Elrond plays from the earliest time, um, uh, from the earliest time in, uh, in, in the Silmarillion when Elrond is first raised and he's raised, uh, that he comes up as a pretty big deal, but his job has always been like the link, right? The transition. He is the living relic in the latter days, in the latter ages 
of the Elder Days in Middle-earth. He is like the living memory of the First Age, even though, chronologically speaking, he didn't participate in a whole heck of a lot of the First Age, right? He's, re he's a relative latecomer um, to the First Age. Uh, and yet, his, his position as sort of the bridge, right? The bridge back to the Elder Days. Um, that is the thing that is emphasized again and again and again um, in... Uh, um, in all of the early Silmarillion texts, and still even in the published, uh, in the published text. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, now, Tony, you're right. He was there for the War of Wrath, right? So he did, uh, he did get one of the highlights. Uh, in fact, arguably one of the best highlights, right? He missed all the really depressing stuff. Uh, but, um, uh, but anyway, okay. Um, All right, so let's see. Um, Tony says, I find it curious that all these immortal beings use lives of men as a measure of time. Um, uh, so it has been for many lives of men, you're saying? Uh, well, what else, right? I mean, he could say, so it has been for many years, but... That doesn't convey much, right? What does that mean? 50 years, right? 50 years is many years, right? Uh, what other unit would he use? Um, I mean, he could say centuries or something, but um, it does seem human-centric, Tony. Um, but... Um, uh, but... Um, yeah, I, Angrist, I don't recall... Is there any time the word millennium is used ever in Tolkien's writing? I can't remember it, if it is. I don't think it ever is. Century is used. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, so no, Tony, I don't think it's that he's saying it for the benefit of the men exactly here. Um, it did, Mad Violinist century is used rarely. Um, but I'm remembering in uh, the Silmarillion, uh, when it's talking about the lifespan of the elves, it it says only if one t tires of ten thousand centuries. I, I think I'm pretty sure it uses the word century in that in that sentence. Um, but um, oh yeah, yeah no, sorry. In the Lord of the Rings, I I do not know at all that uh, uh, that it's I can't. I don't recall a use of the word century in the Lord of the Rings. Um, Rinrus, could you look it up? So you're already looking it up on the on the e-text. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Check it out. Check it out in the Lord of the Rings. See if the word century is used there. I don't remember any usages of it. Um, uh, okay, yeah. Not the word. Not the word century. Anyway. Lives of Men seems perfectly sensible to say in this context uh, because he's um, uh, because he's talking about Gondor, right? He's talking about a human kingdom. So this doesn't necessarily suggest to me at all that he like routinely uses this um, uh, that he, routine, he ret routinely uses this as a unit of measure, right? For time. Um, 
but rather that he's using it specifically to be talking about Gondor because so it has so it has been for many lives of men i.e. the lives of the men of Gondor right who have been living there um yeah yeah um yeah good okay let's see uh, oh so mike it's, it's it's used mostly in the early part right um Okay, Mike sees it used several times, but always by or about hobbits. Okay, okay. Um, interesting. Chapter one in appendices? Yeah, yeah. Hang on a second. Chapter one. Don't tell me. I'm keen to guess. Uh, I love playing this game. Let me see if I can remember where in chapter one the word century is used. Um... Uh, time that it's been since they last had the fireworks show? Is that the context of Century? Bingo! Yeah, nailed it! Okay. Whew. Nigh on a century, yep. Okay, right, yeah, it's in, not, not, not in fact since the old Took died. Yep, okay. Oh, that's so satisfying. I love playing that game. Um... Oh, oh, it happens again? All right, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. Um, let's see. Been nine in a century. Uh, hmm. No, I don't think it's used of Bilbo's age. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not remembering the second one. Okay, no, it's not 50 years ago when I was a lad, or 60 years ago when I was a lad, for more than half a century. Ah, okay. Okay. Yes. Right. Right. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes, of course. The good advice. Uh, reams of good advice for more than half a century. Now, I didn't remember that one. Okay, one out of two. That's not bad. Um, okay, anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mad Violinist, you got it. Dora Baggins. Strong work. Strong work. Um, okay. Anyway. Doom. End of the age. Setting up Aragorn. Okay, okay. Um... Sorry, this is the, that uh, that's like my uh, uh, my version of a really fun party game. Like, choose a word and like try to quote the line uh, from the Lord of the Rings that it, that it that that it comes from. Uh, another fun game is to quote is to read the first half of a sentence from the Lord, like of a random sentence from the Lord of the Rings and see if you can finish it. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> like geek, but anyway, um, so, uh, <laughs> so you think we should play this at Myth Moot Mad Violinist? Yeah, uh, it's a fun game. I, I like that game. Um, <laughs> the Nerd Olympics, <laughs> exactly, Mike. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, back to the discussion of Elrond here. So, if he is setting up, if at least in part what he's doing here is setting up Aragorn, how is he setting him up? 
um, he's describing the current state of things, the desperate state of things. He's certainly describing the need of Gondor for the return of the king, right? Like sort of what the return of the king will mean uh, in Gondor and why this would come um, at the... Uh, why this would come at the... Um, at the very nick of time, right, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to Gondor. And again, I think my sense of the overall thing, sometimes, all right, my biggest picture understanding of Elrond's role as Loremaster, right, why do you go to Elrond to consult him? Why, why seek out Elrond's wisdom, or to ask the same question uh, in a in a different way, wherein does the wisdom of Elrond lie, right? Um, and one of the prime my primary answer to that question is he has seen so much, though again less than other lore masters, right? I mean, I, Galadriel has seen way more than he has. Right? Kyrdan has seen way more, probably, than Galadriel has, right? Kyrdan is almost certainly older than Galadriel. Um, he's definitely older than Galadriel. So, you know, uh, why do you go to Elrond, like the junior varsity member of the, of the like, and from a purely age standpoint, right? What's Elrond's shtick, right? What's his thing? What does he bring to the table as loremaster, as wisdom? And my primary answer to that is Elrond sees the picture. Like, he sees the big picture. Like, he can tell you, like, the direction things are going. Not because he can see the future. Right? It's not that Elrond is a prognosticator, exactly. But he sort of can... He's What we see him doing is... Noticing and putting together um, how things fit in the big picture. Being able to say, uh, we'll see more concrete examples of this later in the council, which is primarily what I base my, uh, my theory here on. Um, uh, and that is that he, he can tell, he is... Uh, uh, a, a, a seer, yes, Luke, in some ways, yes. Um, but again, what does that even mean? Like, what does he see exactly? He doesn't see the future precisely, but yeah, he makes connections, Flamifer. And Catriona says a similar thing. He's good at connecting the dots. And what I think that means in the context of Tolkien's legendarium, right, is um, uh, somebody who... Um, somebody who understands how things resonate with the music, right? Um, who can sort of tell, okay, this is the direction things are going, right? It's not that I know what's going to happen. It's not that I see the future. It's just this sort of feels right. Think about the way in which uh, in The Hobbit we get all the luck stuff, right? The way that Providence kind of keeps uh, orchestrating events in The Hobbit, right? And Elrond plays a role in that. Sort of a smallish role, in a sense, right? He finds the, he finds the moon letters. But uh, um, 
but there's more there's more to it than just that right um uh yeah, exactly, Tony. He also remembers how these events are echoes of previous events. Yes. Uh, he's the one who can stand up and say what he's kind of going to stand up and say here today at the council. Um, this, is the, this is the hour of doom, right? There is a doom that we have to deem. Uh, and... Uh, and it it is it, it you know this is down to us and this is what this means right he sees these implications of things uh, and you know he has uh, he has a sense of the of the of the direction in which things are going um, so wow I really explained that horribly but anyway we'll see clearer examples as we move through uh, the text. I do think, therefore, one again, one of the things that he's saying is he is going to be presenting the case, essentially. Not like a lawyer presenting a case exactly, but kind of like it in some ways, some similarities. Presenting the case that doom is at hand, right? That the end of the Third Age is nigh, that this is the hour of doom uh, in which all these things are coming together. And his Aragorn is a big part of that. Right. The ring is one part of it. Aragorn is the other really big part of that. And Aragorn's primary, like, the most important thing about Aragorn is not the practical help he will be. Right. Um, it's, he's not just like, and but we have an ace in the hole. Right. We have uh, we have a king who's going to return. Um, instead, we have Aragorn is as much as anything. He's like a sign. Right. A sign that the end uh, is at hand. This is, this is the heir of Isildur who, yeah, these two things have come together now. The heirs of Isildur have been uh, up here in the north for a long time, right? Elrond has known about the heirs of Isildur, right? He's been keeping that under wraps. Why is he bringing it out now, right? Why is it now time for the heir of Isildur to go public? Because these two things have come together. We've got that over here and we've got the ring over here. Why didn't Elrond do this before? The people in Gondor have been waiting centuries, right? Though they might not use that word. They've been waiting centuries for the king to come back. And Elrond's been sitting on it like a hen on an egg, as Pippin might say, right? The heir of, uh, of Isildur. He could have produced the heir of Isildur any time in the last thousand years, right? But he didn't do it. Why didn't he do it? Because the time wasn't right to do it yet, right? Now the time has come, right? And that's the kind of thing, like, Elrond can see that. And I think that he's really trying to, trying to show everybody the time is right now. This is, this is the moment. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Cecilia. He does have his finger on the pulse of both elves and men. Um, and, and he does really kind of see the bigger picture. Exactly. And I do think it's that bigger picture that he's, um, um, that he's trying to, uh, that he's trying to, uh, that he's trying to share, right? This is not just a practical strategy section session that he is running here at the council, right? Um, it's sort of, uh, sort of bigger there. Um, now, after he sets this up, so it has been for many lives of men, but the lords of Minas Tirith still fight on, defying our enemies, keeping the passage of the river from Argonoth to the sea. And now that part of the tale that I shall tell is drawn to its close. 
For in the days of Isildur, the ruling ring passed out of all knowledge, and the three were released from its dominion. Interesting that he emphasizes that, right? But now in this latter day, they are, one, they are in peril once more. Notice how he contextualizes this, right? What is the crisis? Not that we're all about to be conquered. The crisis is that the three elven rings are in peril once more, right? Notice he is still speaking to a largely elvish audience, right? Um, now, Tony, he does praise Gondor for their defense, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, but now in this latter day, they are in peril once more for to our sorrow, the one has been found. Um, that also I find kind of interesting to our sorrow. I mean, okay, sure. It, um, raises the stakes a bit, right? But, okay, there are three options, right? I guess. Yeah, no, there are three options. Option number one, I mean, after Isildur didn't destroy the ring, there, there were now three options. Option number one, Sauron finds the ring. Game over. Option two, one of the good guys finds the ring. Option number three, nobody ever finds the ring. Like it's sitting at the bottom of the ocean, for example, right? What happens then, right? Um, they lose? I, I mean, yes, okay, the three rings are still released from the dominion of the one ring, right? The three rings are not in peril, but um, rest of the world still a little bit screwed. Sauron doesn't have the ring, right? Right now, Sauron doesn't have the ring, and it's going to take a series of you catastrophes to keep Sauron from winning the upcoming war, right? Um, the only hope long-term that they have in, for winning that war is the destruction of the ring. The destruction, not the hiding of the ring, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Exactly, Bricktails, exactly. Even if the ring is not found, Sauron's power has been increasing, so their doom is coming either way. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, Angra says, is it just me or did Elrond just broadcast that he holds one of the three? I, 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 Angrist, I, I guess I would, I would say that Elrond's possession of one of the rings of power is just kind of... He didn't exactly say that he has one, but it's kind of... Um, open secret is sort of the category I would put it in right now, right? We haven't explicitly mentioned it, but um, he's stating on pretty confident authority that uh, the three were released, um, and to our... So now, to our sorrow angrist, I believe when he says our, he means the elves, right? To the sorrow of us elves, the one has been found, because now the three rings of the... You know, now the three rings are in peril again. Um... But, um, but yeah, I, again, I, I, look, the fact is for two thirds of the Elvish rings of power, it's, it's not exactly tough to guess, right? I can't imagine anyone is really stumped. The question of like, where are two of the three Elvish rings of power really can't be keeping anybody up at nights. I can't imagine. Right. Um, but, um. Yeah, exactly. As JJ says, it's not permitted to speak of it, but that doesn't mean everyone doesn't know. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Uh, okay. Others shall speak of its finding, for in that I played small part. Now, this appears to be his transition statement, right? That is how Elrond was planning to end his initial speech. Others shall speak of its finding, for in that I played small part. So my, my question here, that I've been slowly building up to for a very long time, is, is he intending? Or not intend? Is, is, what's, how does his agenda go? Right? Is he planning to move on to Gandalf now? Right? Is Gandalf supposed to step in and say, or Bilbo, right, Tony, to say, um, uh, others shall speak of its finding, for in that I played small part. Now let's continue, let's carry on talking about the ring. Um, because, of course, that's, as we know, not what is actually going to happen, right? He ceased, but at once Boromir stood up, tall and proud before them. Give me leave, Master Elrond, said he, first to say more of Gondor. For verily from the land of Gondor I am come, and it would be well for all to know what passes there. For few, I deem, know of our deeds, and therefore guess little at their peril if we should fail at last. Believe not that in the land of Gondor the blood of Numenor is spent, nor all its pride and dignity forgotten. By our valor the wild folk of the east are still restrained, and the terror of Morgul kept at bay. And thus alone are peace and freedom maintained in the lands behind us, bulwark of the west." But if the passages of the river should be won, what then? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tony says it's Boromir's fault that Bilbo misses lunch. Uh, possibly. Possibly. Yes, JJ, I was noticing that too, that Boromir on the one hand asks for leave. Give me leave, Master Elrond. Um, but he does not wait for Elrond to give it, as far as we can see. Um, he launches straight off into his speech, right? The speech that he was... Yeah, sorry, not sorry. Exactly, Mike. Uh, the speech that he's wanting to give starts with, believe not in the land, that in the land of Gondor, right? I mean, he's clearly been... This is... He, he's been wanting to say this at least for the last several minutes, right? While he's been listening to Elrond's little inadequate and vaguely insulting... Uh, synopsis of the last 3,000 years of Gondorian history, right? Um, and uh, yeah, exactly. Mad violinist. He doesn't like all that talk of, of, of fading and waning, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, JJ is wondering how rehearsed is Boromir's bit here. I don't think, Jage. So it's possible, a couple of you are suggesting that it's possible that he's been rehearsing this for 110 days, right? I don't think so. First of all, I'm sure he imagines. Well, let me be a little bit careful starting a sentence that way. No, I feel fairly confident that he believed that he was going to Elrond of Imlidris for counsel, right? I don't think he imagined showing up on the day of a great... being one of, like, a huge room full of people, right? I think he imagined a private audience with Elrond of Rivendell, um, and that this was going to be a one-way... or I mean, a one-on-one -on -one, uh, uh, conversation between him and Elrond of Rivendell, 
right? Um, so that I think is is probably what he was expecting. So I don't think he would be expecting to prepare a speech, and certainly not this speech necessarily, right? Um, uh, is bec- and I say not this speech because this speech seems very particularly targeted or very particularly in response to what El- what Elrond has just been saying. Believe not that in the land of Gondor the blood of Numenor is spent, nor all its pride and dignity forgotten. I wouldn't say he's rebutting Elrond, but he's definitely replying to what Elrond just said. Right? He can't stand to hear the current state of Gondor described as Elrond just described it. But in the wearing of the swift years of Middle-earth, the line of Meneldil, son of Anarion, failed. And Boromir's like, oh, I can't, the spotted line of the steward still stands, dude! Right? Like, it's okay, so the line of the kings failed, but that doesn't mean Gondor has gone down. Uh, and the blood of the Numenorians became mingled with that of lesser men. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> right? Them's fighting words. All right? I mean, Boromir is, I mean, he's squirming, clearly squirming in his seat as he's hearing Elrond deliver this paragraph. Then the watch upon the walls of Mordor slept. Ouch. Tough but fair, right? I mean, yes, of course, like, yeah, I can't deny that whole Minas Ithil thing. Bit of a fiasco. Absolutely. But, um, uh, but come on, dude. Like, our watches slept? Um, yes, okay. Uh, Tower of Guard, these two cities were ever at war, but Osgiliath which lay between was deserted and in its ruined shadow. It makes it sound like they've accomplished nothing, that it's been this one constant retreat, right? Um, so it has been for many lives. Now, we, we do get this, we do get this, uh, he throws them a bone, right? The lords of Minas Tirith still fight on, defying our enemies, keeping the passage of the river from Argonaut to the sea. I think that this is why Boromir's not, I think he's not angry, right? I don't think that we should be hearing Boromir's interruption as a violent emotional outburst, right? Um, and I, I suspect that it has a lot to do with that sentence, right? I uh, I have to think that Elrond is kind of looking out of the corner of his eye at Boromir in this thing. Let's not forget, Elrond is also along these being spontaneous. But this is a last-minute revision of his agenda. He was not expecting Boromir to be here. You know, again, if uh, if Elrond was rehearsing his agenda last night, kind of going over some of the speeches he was going to have to make and the points that he was going to need to bring everybody through during the course of this meeting, right? He was not expecting the heir of Denethor to be present, right? There to be a living Gondorian, and not just any Gondorian, right? but the heir of the Lord of Minas Tirith to be sitting there around the table, and now he is, right? So, uh, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of thinking that that first paragraph was kind of what he had meant to say, but, and then, uh, but the Lords of Minas Tirith still fight on defying our enemies, um, is, uh, diplomacy? on Elrond's part, right? Um, Because he would have to know, I think that he would suspect, at least, how that first paragraph there, which he 
wants to deliver. He wants to make sure everybody knows where things stand. He wants to set up uh, the state, the dire state of Gondor in its decline um, for the sake of this, of the, of the revealing significance of, uh, of, of Aragorn's moment of Aragorn's hour. Right. Um, and yet now he's doing this uh, in front of Boromir. Uh, right, which is um, super awkward. Boromir stands up, and again, he's clearly responding, as he says, right? First to say more of Gondor, for verily from the land of Gondor I am come. Like, no more of this secondhand stuff, right? Um, no more, like, okay, Elrond of Imladris may be really wise, right? But up on current events in Gondor, I doubt he is, right? Um, and fair, totally fair, right? Um, you know, this is Mr. I haven't left Rivendell in, like, centuries and centuries. So, you know, yeah, exactly. So, okay. It would be well for all to know what passes there. I'm going to give you a slightly more updated uh, updated briefing. Right? Exactly. Here's a report from the front. Um, for few I deem know of our deeds, and therefore guess little at their peril if we should fail at last. Um Few I deem know of our deeds, <clears throat> Elrond, right? I, I mean, at the very least, Elrond's um, synopsis was sufficiently vague that Boromir could be forgiven for feeling that Elrond is perhaps not absolutely current in what's going on down there. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting, Trifle. Uh, Trifle says, uh, is the I am come significant? Um, hearing echoes of the, you know, out of the great sea to Middle-earth, I am come. Um, Verily, from the land of Gondor, I am come. Is Boromir deliberately echoing Elendil there? I rather doubt it. It doesn't have anything like the same kind of rhetorical effect. He's not... He's not making anything like a parallel declaration, so I, I don't know that he is necessarily like consciously quoting Elendil there, but that his rhetorical style should be in keeping with that kind of a declaration from Elendil seems no shock, right? Um, at the very least, that he's sort of speaking in Elendil's idiom is, I think, no mistake. Um, uh, yeah, Mike says it might be the sort of meme that would be instinctual. Yeah, especially, um, uh, especially if we are thinking in terms of. So there are two issues here. One is the sort of archaic speech of of uh, of Borum, or the the different speech of the men of the south. But second is just the posture which he is adopting at this moment. Um, and I think that that is important. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, trifle, if there's any significance to that parallel, that this, I think, would be the significance that I would see. That he is deliberately using kind of grandiose formulae in his speech 
because he's kind of on his dignity, right? Um, you know, nor all its pride and dignity forgotten is the claim he is going to make. And so that his own speech need be made with, uh, be made proudly and with dignity seems clear, seems important, right? And so therefore that he would be deliberately um, striking some relatively heroic uh, um, uh, rhetorical poses seems very, very much, and it seems very sensible indeed, right? Um, Boromir's a good speaker. This is a good speech. And uh, I, 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 you know, I, it's certainly not, again, like an impulsive, uh, uh, emotional outburst by Boromir, right? Um, that he's slightly nettled and definitely wanting to give the Gondorian side of things and to uh, uh, expand more on what has, for one reason or another, been given rather short shrift by Elrond, that seems fairly clear, right? But um, but that he's not doing this uh, rashly um, uh, and thoughtlessly is very clear. Um, <laughs> Kit says he probably expects to be called on to lead whatever plan is brought up. I don't know about that, Kit, and possibly so, um, but he certainly is... He is a lordly person, and he is taking a lordly role here. <clears throat> first of all, give me leave, Master Elrond, first to say more of Gondor. Um, notice what he doesn't say? And secondly? What's secondly? Boromir, right? If first you're going to say more of Gondor, what's, what's second? The second, I think, is to relate the purpose of his, uh, of his, uh, of his mission, right? Um, but anyway, uh, oh, I see. Fourth, Thomas, you're interpreting as give me leave first to say, like, before you go on and do this other thing, right? Okay, possibly, possibly. Um, he is going to bring up his riddle, so that you know, I'd, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Give me leave first to say more of Gondor before you go on, before we talk about this, like how the ring, you know, the finding of the ring business, right? Um, uh, okay, okay. Um, sure, okay. I can, I can, I can, I can buy that. I can buy that. Um, I think that it's fairly clear that he hmm, thinks that he's kind of a big deal here. I don't just mean that he's an arrogant person, right? Um, and again, I can hear it in For verily from the land of Gondor I am come, right? He, I think, sees Elrond's... Elrond has been talking about Gondor now for some time, ever since he brought up the war, the, 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 you know, the, the last alliance. He's been talking about Gondor, right? And Boromir seems to feel almost as if this were some kind of 
introduction of himself, right? Um, again, remember, think about this whole situation from Boromir's point of view. Like, I mean, from, you know, think of the last, like, 12 hours from Boromir's point of view. He arrives, you know, at dawn at Rivendell, having been journeying literally for months to find the hidden valley of Imladris where the lore master Elrond dwells. And he's arrived. And he comes and Elrond says, Oh, hi, Boromir. Wasn't expecting you. Um, we're having a council. Why don't you come join us? Right? How is Boromir going to take this? What's Boromir going to think? One possible interpretation, right, is that he could feel like he's um, he's sort of getting shoehorned into this, right? That like, like, oh, well, thanks. You're going to let me tag along to this council you're playing. So you can't postpone your meeting to talk to me. You're going to, I mean, I have to sit in on the meeting first before I can get an answer to my riddle. I, I, I don't think that that's how he takes it. And I doubt that that's how Elrond, um, that that's how Elrond would have brought it up, right? Um, if I had to guess how that conversation with Elrond went, right? Uh, I suspect that Elrond would have said something like, um, your arrival is in the very, uh, you know, uh, has come at the very, the crucial hour, right? That we are about to have this council, which uh, is going to determine, you know, the fate of the Third Age. Uh, so your arrival is just in the nick of time. Uh, you should, you should, it is, it is fitting that you be there, right? Uh, you should, you should come. Um, yeah, Flamifer, I think it very likely that he thinks he's the second most important person in the room. Why shouldn't he? Right? Who else would be? Um, Elrond, obviously, most important person in the room. It's his council. It's his place. It's you know he's the lore, the great lore master uh, that he came to see uh, in the first place. Right? And almost everything that Elrond has been saying. Right? Um, if you think about this from Boromir's perspective. Right? Boromir came to talk to Elrond, and now look what Elrond has done. Elrond has set him up in this way. Right? From the time that he brought up Elendil and Gilgalad, right? I, you know, there he is. Right? Uh, you know, the, so here's, here's Boromir being like, yep, okay, and now... It is time once again for Elrond representing the elves and uh, me representing the men, just like Elendil and Gilgalad of old, to come together in not an alliance because, you know, the might of uh, Elrond is not in arms or whatever. But, um, uh, but uh, now it is time for elves and men to come together to take counsel for the world, right? Would it be strange for Boromir to think like that? I don't think it would be. And then again, remember, end of Elrond's speech. It's been very Gondor-centric, right? Um, one could certainly forgive Boromir for listening to the end of that speech and thinking that Elrond is saying, Gondor, huge deal, right? This is all about Gondor, everybody, right? And the current state of Gondor, and now it's focused on, like, what, you know, the, the troubles that Gondor has fallen in, and this is all, this is all about Gondor. And he comes in like, well... Thank you, Elrond. I, uh, I, fairly, from the land of Gondor, I am come, right? So it's, there's, there's almost a tone of like, thank you for that introduction, Elrond, right? Um, uh, and now I can go on to, uh, to my 
to my sort of uh, uh, part of this. Right. Um, uh, yeah. So, I, no, I completely agree. Those of you who are saying that this is I, I, I I'm when saying these things, I am not at all um, trying to insult Boromir. Again, I'm trying to put myself into his position, right? Trying to kind of think about things as Boromir might be thinking about things. And it makes complete sense, right? Um, he is, in fact, used to being the second most important person in the room, right? That's his sort of normal role. And do I think, you know, he would have some awe of the elves in the room? Yes, uh, sure. In a sense, I think he might be kind of uneasy about them. But awe, like, does he... Does he view himself as lesser in comparison to them? I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, I doubt it. Um, yeah, Arden Cran says he might. He may not think himself the most important person, but he does believe his quest is the most urgent. Yes, and his tidings perhaps the most relevant. Again, especially, and I gotta think that Elrond has said to him something along the lines of like it is like moment your, your arriving is momentous right that surely something Elrond has to have dropped something about you know it is um you know about fate or luck or uh chance of chance it seem or whatever right about Boromir's arrival so again Boromir would have other external reasons to think like okay all right well Here's the, this is the big deal, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. And Mike, I agree. He still hasn't heard anything at the council to indicate a more dire mission. Yeah. Think about also the fact that he is one of two people who has... Two other people, apart from Elrond, who has spoken. Frodo interrupted once, right? With his kind of embarrassing, you know, like... Uh, uh, thing about not realizing, not having really processed how old Elrond was. Um, and Boromir interrupted with his exclamation about Isildur keeping the ring, right? Um, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> For Thala says, this interpretation requires Boromir to have zoned out at the very end of Elrond's speech and not have noticed that the next subject was something to do with the One Ring. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, For Thauntless, I think that Boromir is interrupting not because he's like, oh, anyway, forget the ring business. That's way less important than Gondor. I don't think so. I think instead he is seeing what he has to say as like his own report from the front as the important preamble to this, right? He is interrupting to set the record straight, Angrist. I, that is absolutely an element here. Uh, and uh, that seems very transparent from what he says, right? That he wants to uh, clarify, gently correct some of the things, supplement at the very least some of the things that Elrond was just saying, right? Um but, in addition, again, I think that in Boromir's mind, the question of the One Ring, what happened with the One Ring, I think it is possible that he has not really processed that the One Ring is... Uh, it's possible that he hasn't really processed that, like, the One Ring is in the room, right? 
Um, but it's possible, I think, that he has. He might be tracking with that. Elrond just said, of its finding, others are going to tell, right? So, okay. Um, but he wants to jump in to be like, okay, first let me explain. Let me give you more about what's going on down in Gondor, because this is the context. This is the context of talking about the ring. His mind isn't going to really change about that, right? The question of what does it mean that the ring has been found in this hour? In as much as Elrond is trying to convey this is the hour of doom for the Third Age, I don't think that there's any reason necessarily to doubt to, I, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that, that Boromir is picking up what Elrond is putting down there. He sees that. He hasn't gotten the revelation. He doesn't know about the revelation of the king yet, right? He doesn't realize that it's not him, but Aragorn that, uh, that Elrond is setting up. But in any way, but in any case, from his point of view, it sounds like the logical setup, right? Of course this is about Gondor. And so naturally... Um, I'm, I, Boromir, am going to emphasize how crucial the Gondorian situation is, not just how desperate, but how crucial, right? Bulwark of the West. If the passages of the river should be won, what then? The most important thing in the world right now is that Gondor should stand, because if Gondor falls, everybody else is hosed, right? So let's make sure... We all are well informed about that situation before we go on to talk about anything involving a ring of power, right? Um, and again, I don't know that Boromir is ever really going to step away from that perspective, right? Um, yeah, Mike, I agree. I, I do think that it is... I've always loved Boromir. And Mike's saying, I'm definitely more and more on Team Boromir. He's going to fall later, but he's still pretty great right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I th Boromir's perspective makes sense. Um, it's easy to kind of make fun of Boromir. It's easy to sort of see Boromir as kind of clueless from the beginning. I don't think he is clueless. I think that the way that he looks at uh, things makes perfect sense from his point of view and within the scope of his knowledge, right? Um, uh, yeah, I, I do agree, uh, Kit and Tony, that he's totally Gondor-centric, and also that that is completely understandable. Um, what else would he be? Uh, and again, he could be forgiven if, after Elrond has been trying to talk about the doom of the entire world, that he's still fixating on Gondor, Elrond has given him excuse for that. Elrond was the one just fixating on Gondor, right? And speaking as if what is happening now in Gondor is one of the things that really, really matters, right? Um, By our valor, the wild folk of the East are still restrained, and the terror of Morgul kept at bay, and thus alone are peace and freedom maintained in the lands behind us. Bulwark of the West. Now, that's not completely true, right? But it is true as far as he knows. Um, and he's not completely wrong. Um, he's not completely wrong to think that. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, now, my last question was, how much of a surprise is this interruption? When Boromir interrupts here, is this is the meeting starting to go sideways? Is uh, is Elrond kind of mentally shuffling his notes and being like, "Oh, darn it! <laughs> that was that was not supposed to be. Next was going to be Bilbo, and then it was going to be Gandalf, and then we were going to, um, or is or or not? See, Blad the Inspirer, and good to see you. By the way, I don't usually see you in class. Um, Blad, I agree. It it does kind of seem like Elrond should have known, right? Um, if he is not deliberately setting up Boromir, he could hardly have done it better if he were trying to, right? Again, I think Boromir can absolutely be forgiven for feeling like, you know, Elrond has finished the warm-up act, and obviously that was his cue, right? That was, that was, that was Boromir's cue to speak, for verily from the land of Gondor I am come. This is the big reveal, Right? That Elrond, Elrond is leading up to a big reveal, and the big reveal is me, right? Yes, thank you for saying a few words about Gondor. Insufficient words, no big deal, right? I'll supply what's, what, what is remaining, right, to say about Gondor. But okay, I am come from Gondor, verily. I myself have personally come from Gondor, and I can tell you what's really happening there. And Elrond is, and I'm here to endorse what Elrond just said. He is totally right, right? I mean, okay, like, you know, he kind of undersold us in some ways, but, you know, uh, granted that uh, still, Gondor, I, I think we all agree that Gondor is a huge deal, and that we're, you know, and and that, like, the making sure that Gondor stands I think we can all agree that that's the number one priority as far as the free peoples of Middle-earth are concerned, right? I mean, again, totally, totally logical from Boromir's point of view. Um, uh, <laughs> and JJ, I agree. He was building up to the reveal uh, of somebody, but I think perhaps not, uh, not there. Um, yes. Yes. Um, so, yeah, Flamifer, I don't think it's what Elrond had planned either. Um, but I also don't think that he's quite unprepared either. Uh, I think this is going to... Um, um, I think this is going to work... I mean, it's going to work out fine. For Elrond's point, this is not, this doesn't, um, this doesn't wreck Elrond's plan at all, right? And in fact, Boromir is unknowingly going to set up exactly the reveal that Elrond was building towards as well, right? Um... Yeah, Ambrosius, Aurelianus, I agree. I do think Elrond has led a few councils in his day. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Blad, that's a really interesting question. Do most of the people at the council find Boromir's speech here helpful and informative? Yeah, I mean, okay. 
uh, what is the uh, like the eye roll quotient for people around the table as Boromir's saying these things, right? Um, I think the only sentence in these two paragraphs that is likely to make some of the elves shift uncomfortably in their seats or again, sort of gently roll their eyes is that sentence about uh, thus alone are peace and freedom maintained in the lands behind us bulwark of the West. Right. Um, and yeah, trifle Aragorn, I think as well, right. A little bit there. Um, yeah. Um, But apart from that, again, do I think that Boromir is making a fool of himself, to say it more bluntly, right? Um, is, is Boromir exposing himself? You know, exposing himself to... Not that anyone here is going to ridicule him, because everyone is way too uh, polite for that, but... Um, uh, but you know, something along those lines, essentially, you know, is this, is this something that he, um, uh, how, how foolish are these statements? Um, I, I don't think, I don't think very foolish, really, um, Yeah, perhaps Simon Aragorn is remembering his time as Throngil. Um, uh, yeah, Flamifer, I do agree. I mean, I don't think that Elrond... I do... Th I'll say it positively. I do also think that Elrond found Boromir's arrival just in time for the Council, both miraculous and wholly good. Yes, I, I absolutely... Uh, I don't mean to imply that Elrond is like inwardly cringing and, and being like, Oh great. There goes, there goes my meeting. <laughs> right. Um, I had a plan and now that's blown all out the water and I gotta, you know, improvise. Yeah, no, no. I, I think he, if I, as that's one of the reasons why I cannot imagine that Elrond did not make some comment to Boromir earlier in the day about how providential his arrival was, right? Because Elrond would see, the hand of providence involved. That is not an accident. Boromir's arrival right now is not an accident. And, um, uh, and he, and there's no way, that's exactly the kind of thing that, uh, that Elrond, uh, I think is especially good at perceiving. Um, so absolutely, absolutely. He, he is glad that Boromir is there, and he, I'm sure, believes that Boromir has a very important part to play, not just in the events that come after, but in the council itself, right? Um, for that reason, I don't think, I can't imagine he's surprised after this speech that he has just made that Boromir chooses this moment to interrupt and to make these clarifications, right? He has to know that that would at least tempt Boromir into speaking up. Um, but... Um, at the same time, uh, it, and it does sort of introduce a new factor that has to be managed. But here's the thing. 
In what way is Boromir's arrival extra, like, providential? What, what purpose is served by Boromir's arrival? If it is a stroke of providence, if more than chance lies in this timing of Boromir's arrival, what purpose does it serve? I am sure Boromir... Well, I say I'm sure. Okay, the question I'm contemplating is, do I think it likely that Boromir has already told Elrond the riddle? In private. Before the council. Um, I'm going with yes. I think he's going to reveal it to everybody here in the council. But the dude made a journey of 110 days with the entire, like, the fulfillment of his quest was to tell that uh, dream riddle to Elrond and to get his advice. And I cannot believe he was like, I, oh, no, it's okay. I'm good. I'll wait. I'll wait. Right? No. He's going to be like, okay, uh, Elrond, I have come a journey of 110 days to ask you this. Boom. Right? He's, he, he's totally going to tell him right away. Now, I believe that Elrond didn't answer. Right? That Elrond's response was, okay, I hear you, and I'm glad you're here, and you'll, you're totally going to find out the answer to that riddle in just a couple hours. Right? So hang tight, come to the council, and don't worry. All of your questions are going to be answered. Elrond totally did not tell him the answer before the council. But that Boromir asked Elrond his question before the council, I, I, I exactly, I think he said it as soon as he as soon as he arrived. So, if that's the case, if Elrond sees Boromir arrive, and then also has heard the riddle, what is the effect? What is the effect of... Upon Elrond, I mean. How does... You're, you're Elrond. What are you thinking? What are you thinking when you hear Boromir... Like that the son of the Lord Denethor of Minas Tirith has shown up on your doorstep with this like prophetic verse about halflings and Isildur's bane and a sword that was broken. Right? JJ, exactly. Elrond is gonna be like, well, check, check, and check. Right? It's like so. Okay, thank you. If I had been look, I was pretty confident that I was reading this correctly. Right? I was pretty sure that this whole Hour of Doom... I was ready. I'm, I was going to run the Hour of Doom meeting anyway. Right? But okay. Just in case I needed some confirmation. Wowza. Right? That is confirmation. Um, uh, exactly, Angrist. He's like, uh, that's the moment when Elrond sends somebody running out back to, 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 to heat up the forge. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, this is... Like, from where Elrond is sitting, this has to be, like, as explicit a confirmation of his interpretation of events as he could possibly have asked for, right? Um, I mean, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, what's, and what is the message? Right? We're going to get to that soon, maybe even next week. Um, but... Uh, that that poem, right, which again, which Boromir has almost certainly told him already, right, 
sword that was broken, the halfling forth shall stand, Isildur's bane, right? If the big purpose of the council, right, is to convey the hour of doom thing and the doom that we have to deem, uh, which is what we're going to do with the ring, if that's the whole big purpose and a big part of that purpose, a big element of the setup of that whole picture is the reveal of Aragorn and setting Aragorn out on that now, this is the moment of the Dunedain, right? This is what those, all these centuries that the uh, chieftains of the Dunedain have been in hiding, right? That was all in preparation for this moment, right? Um, so, Boromir becomes... Boromir becomes, <laughs> well, okay, I don't want to, um, all right, well, I'll just say what I'm thinking. Basically, Boromir's like his, uh, his patsy here, right? He no longer has, to, I think that to, to Elrond, this doesn't make the meeting harder. I mean, again, there's elements that are more awkward, Right, he was not planning to do the reveal of the forthcoming king in front of the son of the Lord of uh, of the Lord of Minas Tirith. However, I don't think that Elrond is particularly daunted by that, um, and instead he sees this. This is a perfect setup. Right, he doesn't even have to do it now. This whole argument he was preparing to make about how like and so for these reasons we can see the hour is coming. Now he's like. Uh, uh, no, no. Now I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to let Boromir do his prophetic riddle thing, right? And then we'll make the answer to the riddle obvious to everybody in the room and boom! Bob's your uncle. Right? Um, so, do I think that Elrond is upset that Boromir interrupts here? No. I don't think he is. Did he plan on it right now? I don't necessarily know that he planned on it right now. Um, but... Uh, I think that his plan very likely has been to deploy Boromir and Boromir's vision as the moment of the reveal, essentially, right? That's going to be the trigger, right, for, uh, for that moment of the revelation of Aragorn. Um, yeah, yeah, um... Interesting. Tony says, can we compare Boromir's arrival to that of Eärendil and Valinor? Well, I mean, there, there are some similarities. I think there are more differences in similarities. I don't see a very close parallel, um, but it's interesting. I mean, certainly in, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the looked for that cometh at unawares, right? Uh, you know, possibly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so Flamifer says, uh, Elrond's main purpose should probably be to persuade Frodo to take up the quest. Maybe, maybe. Um, but whether that's the case or not, I think, again, the poem only helps Elrond, right? The halfling forth shall stand, as um, uh, <clears throat> as Angrist was pointing out. That's uh, 
Well, certainly suggestive, right? Certainly suggestive. Um, it could mean more than one thing, right? Um, exactly, Flamfer. It could talk about the finding of the ring. It could talk about the presentation of the ring at the council meeting, right? The, the revelation of the ring. Um, so the halflings are involved at all of the stages here, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Let's see. Sorry, okay. I'm making my should we go on to the next slide face. No, I think I want to stick here. Um, let's not worry too much yet about uh, Frodo's choice, because we're still a long ways away from that. So, my conclusion is, I don't think that he, Elrond, was deliberately trying to goad Boromir here. I don't think that he was intending this as a kind of segue to Boromir. I believe Elrond, when he said in that, you know, in that... Uh, previous um, paragraph. Oops. In that previous paragraph, uh, you know, but now in this latter day, they are in peril. Others shall speak of its finding, for in that I played my, I played small part. That seems to be a legitimate segue, right? I am segue. I'm going to now segue to the finding of the ring, right? Um, but I do think that uh, um, he's perfectly ready to adapt when Boromir says his piece. He knows Boromir is going to say his piece sooner or later. Right. And the moment when Boromir says his piece is going to be the cue to Aragorn to reveal himself. Uh, or, the, or, or at least the reveal to Elrond to reveal uh, to reveal Aragorn and explain about the ring. Right. Um, I do think that Boromir is speaking out of turn and that it was not the plan um, it seems that the plan is Elrond is going to say what he has said, right? Setting up the setting up all the things that he has set up. Then he's going to we're going to talk about the finding of the ring um, and establish that the ring that Frodo has and that is here at Rivendell is the ring of power, right? Then it's going to be time for revelations, right? Then let's do the Aragorn reveal, right? And then let's talk about what should happen next, right? Uh, because in that context, right? In the context of like, and now is the hour of the return of the king and the third age is coming to its culmination. In this apocalyptic context, what do we do, everybody? If I had to make a stab at what Elrond's original agenda looked like, I think that's kind of it. Um, but he's not going to find it difficult to accommodate the, this interruption by Boromir into his, uh, uh, into his overall plan here. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly, Flamifer. That does seem to be right. Uh, I wasn't planning uh, on Boromir breaking in here, but I'm totally prepared for Boromir. Because, again, he knows what Boromir is going to say. Uh, Boromir's told him. I, he has to have. I can't believe that that didn't happen. Um, so, yeah, he knows what Boromir is going to say, and he can certainly see how perfectly Boromir's words, Boromir's, uh, you know, thank you for the portent. Because, remember, without Boromir, they got nothing. As far as, like, 
divine revelations are concerned, right? Uh, there's no prophecy. There's no Boromir's the only one who brings a prophecy to the meeting, right? He is the only one who comes in with any external evidence that is external to Elrond or Gandalf's own interpretation of events, right? He's the only one who comes in with some kind of external certification that, uh, you know, fate is on the move here. Um, and, you know, here now he's bringing it in sooner rather than later, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> exactly, Karina. The cool people bring bring prophecies to the party. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Um, so let's let's pause there. Um, we will uh, we'll return to the rest of Boromir's speech next time after uh, looking at his uh, uh, his introduction here. And then we'll uh, we'll see where he heads and watch the segue out from that. If we're. uh if we're intrepid, maybe we'll even get to the poem next week. We'll see. Anyway, all right. Um, so uh, this coming weekend, of course, is TexMoot. I'm going to be down in Houston uh, to hang out with folks uh, in Texas this coming weekend. Looking forward to that. Hoping to uh, to see some of you there uh, in Texas this week. Um, but I will. I should be back home in plenty of time. Uh, Tuesdays are rarely disrupted by regional moots, so that's a good thing. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, Druid's Fire, we are finishing uh, Out of the Silent Planet uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be our final session on C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet uh, tomorrow night. So, yeah, excellent. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for joining me for a text discussion. We're going to continue uh, on to our field trip now, but I'm going to say goodbye to the folks in the town and the folks on Twitter. Uh, and uh, uh, look forward to joining you guys next week. And feel free, everybody, to join us at twitch.tv slash signumu. Okay. All right. Uh-oh. Sorry. Advance to the next slide. We'll sneak preview of what's going to happen next week. All right. Oh, Bricktail. So, good question. Will Morgoth's ring start next week? Yes, that's a question. Uh, many people have been asking me, as for instance, poor Curtis, who maintains the uh, uh, Signum and Mythgard website. Um, no, there is going to be a gap. Um, uh, I'm going to... Because I'm going to be... A big chunk of the latter, latter half of February, I'm going to be gone. So I think we're going to actually start it after that because I don't want to have like one week and then be away. Uh, so I think we're, there's 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 going to be a little bit of a delay. But okay, all right, we are ready. You ready, Valori? Oh, hang on. I'm not getting your audio, Valori. Great. Now we're having another audio issue here. Hmm. People on Twitch here, Valori? Wouldn't think so, as I'm not hearing her. Yeah. Nope. 
Um, okay. Hmm. Maybe this is a Discord issue. Can hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. It's just bizarre. What on earth is wrong with Discord tonight? Bizarre. Just bizarre. Uh, Discord does have a new update, so that might be part yeah? of it. Yeah? Maybe. It's just wacky. Vlory, can you try going out and come back in again? See if that helps? Just, like, quit the program and open it back up again and see? No idea. Yeah, if there is a new update, this might be... Because this is just, like, irregular and strange. This is not... I mean, there are sometimes technical testing, failures testing, on my one, end. Two, hey, one, you're back! There we go. Yeah. Hey, huzzah, but, like, the fact, the fact that people keep having to, like, turn it off and back on again to make it work suggests to me that this is a Discord problem. Yeah. Have you tried turning it on and off again? Exactly. Okay, alright. So let's all right. head over to Thorin's Gate. Alright. Andiamo. So I Glad believe last time we were trying to figure out where that we were trying to figure out where that shaft of light was coming from. And we saw that big, 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 big statue. Yes, of Thorin in the middle. Right. At the Thorin in the yes, middle. Yes, the, the 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 statue of Thorin the Artificer rather than Thorin the Warrior. Yes. Not Thorin Oakenshield in his great uh, moment of military heroism at the Battle of Azanul Bazaar, but rather Thorin with a forging hammer in his uh, hand. It's still suitably epic, though. It's definitely. Oh yeah, no, it's very epic. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, Could and it have I, been yeah. A hint. Like his people hinting, like Thorne, stay home, stay home, don't go back. <laughs> stay to home, right? Yeah, don't go back to Erebor. Maybe. Look, look, look how nice this place is. What else could you want? Come on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, um. What do you need? That is one of the things. Uh, when I, I think about. Okay. So of course, <laughs> one of the things that's very demonstrable when you go through Lotrum. One of the patterns that's really clear, right, is um, one of the first things that strikes one, at least I, I find, and I, I don't think I'm alone in finding, one of the first things that you're struck by when playing Lotro is the scale, right? How you can, like, ride in five minutes across the Shire and all that kind of thing, right? Yes. Um, Although, and that's God, all it's only five minutes. Exactly. Very natural. And I don't, I don't think anyone is like shocked or appalled by that fact. But um, but it's certainly, you know, something that kind of obtrudes itself upon your notice uh, when you first start playing the game. Um, one of this one of the sort of latter things that one tends to notice is. Apart from the like geographic distances, everything else is bigger in Lotro. Right. Um, yes. The, there's this tendency towards very grandiose scale. Of course, the one of the most um, cinematic scale. Cinematic scale, exactly. One of the most uh, dramatic examples of this, of course, being the Stone of Erech, which we've Stone talked about Eric, many times. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's uh, um, the yeah the most. One is tempted to say most comical versions of that, and there certainly are comic elements. But at the same time, I I I, I wholly understand the sort of adaptation principle that they're working under uh, in doing that. 
I think it's sound. I think it makes perfect sense. I'm totally, I'm totally fine with that. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Edith says the statues in Moria and Minas Tirith are huge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the proliferation of like megalithic statues is, uh, uh, you know, just like colossal giant, statues, giant barfing heads in the, in the ceilings are just amazing. Yes. In Moria. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that Thorin's gate was the first place in the game where I really had this experience. Um, the, the experience of like, you know, like the, the, like everything's bigger in Texas experience, right? You know, like the everything's bigger in Lotro because I started out, I, Wigan was my first character. And so I started out in Breeland and in Bree, you don't get that impression. I never got that impression in the Breelands, right? No, no. Bree doesn't Prancing seem. Prancing a little cramped actually. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, uh, yeah, the Prancing Pony seemed fine. Bree itself didn't seem straight. I you know, like Trestle Bridge up to the North Downs, like, like all the places around that quests took me to, um, you know, Staddle and, and, uh, and, and all the other, you know, towns there in the Bree land. Again, everything seemed yeah. sort of fine, seemed sort of Fitting, normal. Fittingly the mundane. Lonelands, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the Lonelands, you know, some of the ruins there are on a, you know, a large-ish scale, but again, nothing really struck me as, as sort of odd. Uh, then the first time I came to Thorin's Gate here, I was like, holy cow, this is unbelievable how big this is. <laughs> and of course, the very first thing that I thought of is not a passage from the Lord of the Rings text, but a passage from the Quest of Erebor. Um, and in the Quest of Erebor in Unfinished Tales, when Tolkien describes that iconic meeting between Gandalf and Thorin in The Prancing Pony, right, when they meet at the, at the Inn at Bree, um, yes. he, Thorin, invites Gandalf back to his halls in the Blue Mountains. And he speaks very disparagingly of them. You know, he's like, to my halls, if, you know, if they can even be called that, basically, you know, he's like, it's a, you know, <laughs> totally downplaying that, you know, like these places where, right. Cause remember, this is in the context in the Hobbit in chapter one of the Hobbit. Remember where he talks about his people stooping as low as blacksmith work or even coal mining, right? Like uh -huh. the impression that he gives is that, you know, the, the descendants of Thror and Thran have been basically camping in the blue mountains. Right. And that, you know, they have um, they've recently, you know, been doing OK for themselves. Right. As Thorin fingers the gold necklace about his neck. Right. Um, but they're still basically squatting, you know, in the Blue Mountains um, and just pining to return to their real home. Um, and again, yeah. and so in that context, his words to Gandalf make perfect sense. You know, that like, mm -hmm. and it's certainly possible to read that as a, 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 a kind of dwarfish sort of false humility, you know, like that probably they're more grandiose than that, like that he's sort of lowering expectations so that when Gandalf gets there, Gandalf's going to be super impressed, right? I can, I can, I can easily sure. imagine he has, he's, you know, he has that kind of effect in mind. Um, yeah. But at the same time, uh, at the same time, I don't think that this could possibly be what Thorin was describing, right? When well, he was talking about his barely qualifies as a hall. So, like, the first time I came in here, I was like, 
whoa, <laughs> this is not what I pictured. <laughs> yeah, but you know why they chose this kind of scale, though, right? Because the only experience we have with dwarven architect architecture is in Moria, and Moria is described as having stone forests and, and right. bridges and everything. It's, it's on a much more almost its own continent made in stone. Exactly. So, like, if you if you were to think what's a smaller, sort of humbler, pared-down version of Moria and came up with this, I think that's a pretty accurate scaling. It's true that compared to Moria, this is modest in scale. Because yes. although this is a very large room that we're standing in right now, there's only a few rooms like it. I mean, if we look at our map here, right, this mm -hmm. room is not the largest room in you know, the ground floor of Thorin's Gate here. But it's, yeah. you know, what, at the at the most, the third largest room uh, in this, uh, in this place. Anyway, but it's like a quarter of the whole place, right? And yeah, of course, anyone who's journeyed in, yeah, this is, is this, this is the lobby. Uh, and it's, uh, um, so yeah, there's no question that this whole place could fit within one, you know, small little, you know, portion of one bit in Moria. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, so, I don't know. Hmm. Personally, so, okay, here's my question. My question is, <laughs> What exactly do is accomplished by depicting Thorin's Gate like this? One, one accomplishes, um, one accomplishes, well, I don't think setting up Moria for later is the primary thing that's accomplished. Possibly no. it could, I mean, I mean, maybe, but. Perhaps in the short term, the conceptual phase. right? Perhaps in this, in, in the initial phase, it could inspire your imagination as a player, right? Mm -hmm. If you know the books and you know that Moria, you know how much. I mean, you you know the proportion, right? Thorin's Gate yeah. is to Moria, right? So, mm -hmm. if if you're looking around here and you're saying like, man, like if Thor, you know, does it help to stimulate marvel and wonder? in your imagination and thinking about Moria? Yeah, possibly it does. If you're expecting that, um, I could imagine that. Of course, I mean, one of the things that it does is kind of raises the stakes. So like Moria has to be absolutely colossal uh, if it's going to be properly proportioned to this. Okay, um, okay. But I'm not sure we don't lose a little something from Moria though, because although Moria is certainly larger than this, one of the things that I don't like about this scale in Thorin's Gate is that, I don't know, in a sense, I, okay, in the sense I like the fact that my imagination is, is led to kind of prepare for Moria, right? To imagine Moria, like the hugeness of Moria that is to be. But my objection is it helps me slightly accurately imagine <laughs> Moria so that when I get to Moria, I don't find it dissatisfying. That would be bad, 
Right, if we got to Moria and we're like, oh, actually, Moria is kind of a dump, having been used to Thorin's Gate, like, that would be the worst case scenario, obviously, right? Well, parts of it aren't. <laughs> parts of it is a dump, right, yeah, exactly. But that's a given, under the circumstances. Um, yes. Anyway, like, uh, they certainly do succeed in making Moria not look small, right? They fulfill the promise of Thorin's Gate in that yes. way, and so that's a success, that's really good. But... In some ways, I found Moria less awe-inspiring, I think, than I might have done had I not had Thorin's Gate first. If you see what I, do, you see what I mean? What I mean by that? Um, I was prepared for the scale, in a sense, right? Because I had now got like from Thorin's Gate, I learned to associate dwarvish halls with things of this magnitude, right? Um, and so, yeah, when I went to Moria, I was like, all right, this it better be even bigger than Thor. This should make Thorin's Gate look like a shoebox, right? Um, and it did, right? It succeeded. I wasn't disappointed, but I also wasn't, like, awed by it. And in some ways, I kind of think that a more accurate representation of the proportion between the old halls of the Longbeards in the Blue Mountains, as they're described in the book, or not described, but as they're suggested, evoked, implied, whatever, uh, in the books, and Moria, as it's described, would be, I don't know, it's not like the difference between, you know, a three-bedroom house and, you know, a huge, you know, like Downton Abbey, right? Yeah. Um, or like a five bedroom house and like a, a, a McMansion and Downton Abbey, right? Like <laughs> it's not like the, I, the proportion seems to me would be better to be something like, um, something like a yurt and Downton Abbey. You know what I mean? It's true, but like, keep in mind, it's got a roof, but it's got a lot of the same proportions of the things we've already seen, like Gondaman and whatever. It's just not in the open air this time. That's what makes it look so imposing. Right, right. I can agree that, like, in that sense, it's not like this is... Uh, so, like, to call this a hall, right, is sort of true, but you're you're arguing that basically that's sort of only true by accident. It's only a hall in the sense that there happens to be a roof overhead because we're underground? Yeah, I, it's like we... I, 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 the problem is I think you're still blinded by the fact that in we're inside. That means this mm -hmm. is a building. And it's like, you have to think of it less right. as a building and more like, this is Kalondin. This is, right. this is Rivendell. Right. And you have to this think is... more like, this is, this is not all Thorin's house. I think Thorin actually occupies probably a section of this place. Right. Right. Exactly. And even the, I mean, I think that that's a good, that's a good kind of perhaps a corrective to this. Um, this is, uh, um, where we are standing here is not is less parallel to a, a great building. This is not like Meduseld. This is like yes. a courtyard, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a hall exactly, as so much as it is a courtyard in that sense. Yes. Um, but of course, it's it's underground, like all decent dwarvish places should be underground. It's bloody cold um, outside. <laughs> Right. And of course, you know, again, we, when we look up, we can see the portion of the ceiling, mostly, uh, most of it, of course, um, but even parts of the walls, which are still natural rock, like we saw in Sarnur, right? That this was mm -hmm. uh, not uh, a city built up inside a mountain, but rather 
the entrances to, you know, like what a, what it means to even call something a building is different, right, for dwarves uh-huh. than it is. Just as we were looking at outside at these freestanding structures, which are not themselves buildings, but only the entrances to buildings, it, right? Because yeah, the actual exactly. living space is underground. Yeah. Remember how many little huts we were looking at? We were going, this is not the whole thing. This is the tip right. of the iceberg Exactly. Here. Exactly. So that some of what... So, so your argument is that part of what is being done to me essentially, as I'm experiencing this as a player, is that I'm being invited to kind of reorient my expectations and my understandings of even, like, kind of how architecture works or how um, city planning, at least, is meant to work? Um, I, can, I, can, I can get behind I, that I, kind I need of thing. To, I, yeah, that sort of thing. Now, basically, what I'm asking you to do is just take the lid off this place and then mm-hmm. look at it like mm-hmm. that. Don't right. think of it this this as an edifice. Think of this as a city. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Okay. I can get behind that. This is is Rivendell. We're we're looking over the waterfalls at the little red house in the distance. And compared to, again, now thinking back to the Moria comparison, right? Mm -hmm. What they do in Moria, the the difference between the difference in scale and variety with how mm-hmm. the dwarves inhabit their environment in Moria, right? Wow. I was so thrilled with how the different uses for the rooms. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to going through Moria, which is good because it's going to take us months. Um, <laughs> months, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Several uh, years that month. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. I can see that. I can see that. But of course, there's another reason for this to feel grandiose. I think, and that is again, if there's, if there is something that, if there is, a message that it seems, that, the Lotro people want us to absorb about dwarves, right? Uh-huh. It is how important building and making things is to them, right? How important craftsmanship is to them. And that they're not going to, yeah, that they're not going to do something, you know, half-heartedly. Yes, in scope, this city, Qua City, as you're you're describing, is not very big. Um, No. But they're still doing what they can when we look around and we see there's a good deal of what one would have to call unnecessary architectural features here, right? Like, I think of that whole facade <laughs> behind Thorin's statue, right? Uh, yeah, you know, it's gorgeous. With the kite shapes, everything. It's... Yeah, exactly. The the combination of the, you know, the sort of the, the rectangulars and the, 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 you know, the, the rectangular bars with the vertical blue lines and then the, you know, the, the angles of those sort of, you know, the, the, the diamond shapes on the pillars and everything. Yeah, um, not work. Exactly. It's, it's lovely. Um, and that seems to be the point of it. This is not a defensive fortification, right? This is not a... Where, there's no function there, apart from its being lovely. And yeah, it's, that's important. For the love of creation. Yes, yes. Um, because, of course, that's another thing to keep in mind. One, um, f- well, 
I suppose one could call it a flaw in my interactions with the game is that, of course, it's very easy for me to fall into the sort of assumption that obviously it's like diehard, lifelong Tolkien fans that this game is made for. Right, clearly. Um, that I'm always thinking about it, the relationship with the text and what they're doing with the text and stuff. But of course, the developers of the game have complete newbies to Tolkien in mind as well. And this being one of the starter areas, one of the things that they're trying to convey in the design of this place is to teach us some, like, to teach people who know nothing of Tolkien's dwarves some things about dwarves. And so the entire, the entire city here, as it were, reflects back the message that we get very subtly in the statue of Thorn. If anything, in a colossal statue can said to be can be said to be subtle, and that is the fact that he's holding a. Right, that he's holding a forging hammer instead of a battle axe. Yeah. In this statue, that the 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 the, the colossal statue at the heart of their whole little 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 city here, their whole little culture, is not a warrior uh, at his greatest moment, but a smith at his forge. Um, and that I think seems to me a perfectly acceptable way, a really admirable way of introducing players to dwarves and dwarf culture. Anyway, let's um, let's move around here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely here it tells you a lot. It's like these are diminutive people, but they don't do anything in a small way. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is uh, don't don't think about dwarves just as like little people, right? Um, dwarves are not halflings. <laughs> right. Dwarves are not halflings. Yeah. They might be shorter uh, than other people, but they are not. They are not halflings. They are. They are different. They think differently and they act differently. And yeah, to um, uh, that we are in a completely different culture here, I think is uh, um, is is clear and important. Again, look at all these. Mm-hmm. I yeah, just don't think all of these work. arches and spans are really necessary. There's a solid wall right behind it, right? I mean, these aren't even columns. They're pilasters. They're against the wall. But there's, there's a door here. Well, yeah. This, uh, Absolutely. No, again, like that's, as you say, this is the courtyard. Uh, this is not the house. This is the courtyard, and the house leads off of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. All around these places, we see we see doors all over the place. I mean, if, if there's this, of course, right behind our vault mm-hmm. keeper over here. This door that goes into, I don't know, what is that, the bank or something behind that? But even if you look around the corner here, right, these uh, mm-hmm. this door over here, not just this one in the side wall, but this one. Yeah, right? it's probably several offices. This is where the money's kept. This is where documents are kept and deeds and contracts, right. that sort of thing. And But if you look, I mean, we can ride around three sides of this little structure that that door is in, but it's perfectly mm-hmm. clear the rooms that that door leads into are not just inside this building. Right? This building is just the lobby of whatever that is inside there. Right. Uh, and the main office are going to be down. They're going to be over. Right. They're going to be in the wall. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's uh, 
that's where we are. That's that's what this is. That's how this works. Like we saw in Sarnur, like we saw in other places. Um, but we see, I think, most clearly here. Um, let's um, let's go up to the main hall. I'm just sort of looking at the the sort of flow of it. We still have a natural ceiling. Yep. We've, We've seen this architecture this... before in the in the beginning quest with Scorgrim. Right. Was, it was very. It was built in that style. Uh, whether it... I noticed though the floor is smoothed, it is natural over yeah. there. I mean, we've got the we've got the as if to emphasize the paved way. Right. Mm -hmm. With these patterns oh. interrupting in here, right? Patterns which imitate the columns on the walls. I think that's human hmm. rock or packed dirt on the... I think it's rock over there. Mm. Just because it looks like the ceiling. Yeah. Um... Okay, yeah, and so we, again, we can see this is not, uh, as you say, this is not a, um, this is not like a an aisle in the middle of a room. This is a street in the middle mm -hmm. of the town center, and that yeah, these around see, these are the, the buildings that flank it. Yeah, it's divided into buildings, mm -hmm. and areas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Gee, how'd you like getting the job of polishing the road in the middle? Yeah, well, it's clearly polished. Is right. I mean, you can you can you can see the reflection of the throne. Yep. In it over here. There's a little dancing area over there. <laughs> yes. I like the little dancing area. <laughs> yes. Dwarf, that was one of the first things we learned about dwarves is they like to to sing and play musical instruments. So. It's true. Okay, now we've got these. I love the the three levels, right? So we've got this mm -hmm. first staircase, which is the same width exactly as the street, right? Yes. Only with those two pillars with the burning braziers to kind of guide you in between up the stairs. And then at the top of the mm -hmm. stairs, we get a carpet which then leads to a half-size ramp, not even stairs, a ramp leading up onto the platform. And then, of course, up the ramp, and I feel like I should dismount, um, up the ramp, we get to hear these, finally, the, and then the quarter-size or eighth-size little ramp <laughs> up to the, th to the throne area itself. Um, that... Two may walk abreast. <laughs> yeah, two may walk abreast. Exactly. Um, uh, that that sort of the the sense of of the you know the way that this whole street sort of focuses in on this place, right? The whole the whole flow of the street has pointed this. This is the destination of that street that we've been walking down, which again is not a it's not an aisle; it's a street. Um, and the culmination of the street is, again, in the context of Thorin's Gate, as you say, as an indoor city, an outdoor throne, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're not absolutely. going into a, th a throne hall. Like, the city itself is the, is the throne room of Thorin mm -hmm. as he surveys, 
you know, the whole approach. He can see there's his statue there and we can see the light, right, coming in from behind it. Um, mm-hmm. There's this direct line. The statue does interrupt it. Um, but there's this direct line from the, the, the initial gate down the steps, across the floor, up the landing, and then up the three levels to uh, where Thorin originally would have been sitting and looking out over his people. Um, funny that the dancing floor is invisible from here, right? It's down, uh, um, it's down around the corner there. Like maybe Thorin didn't approve. I don't know. Um, little too ratty, little too ratty, but, yeah, but exactly. I, I like your, I like your, your, um, discovery of the progression of the size of ramp. Oh, lost you again. entourage. And then you tell oh, your yeah. entourage to wait at the bottom. Yes, oh, exactly. No, no, yeah, then I, you got yeah, your entourage. Got you now. And next yeah. step up, you, you, your valets stay there. So at, at the end, right. it's just you going up. Right, exactly. It does. Because, of course, if this were just like the whole street going up there, it that feels like an open invitation, right? You know, like, <laughs> um, like it, but, you know, this is, uh, of course, anybody is welcome. It's open, right? I mean, there are guards, standing there right to to you know make sure nothing nothing too rowdy goes on you know in case those dancers get uppity or something but um (laughs) but still there's this this is uh this is it's very open it's very communal right i mean Mm -hmm. how odd would it be thinking of it from a human point of view right how odd would it be to be walking down a street in the middle of a human city and then to look over and like, there's the King just sort of, there's the King's throne just sitting there right in the plaza. That's true. It's, 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 it's highly it's defensible though. The, the ramps is. make it highly defensible though, because it turns it into a bottleneck. Yep. And then at the end, you just have, uh, the end, you just have to wall and popping people on the head with the hammer. <laughs> one at a time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm also, kind of interested in the throne itself if Dwalin doesn't mind our being up there. We get the little dip, right? Um, yep. But there's no other... There's no chair per se, right? Notice how the, yeah. the, 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 the seat level of the throne is not only at the same level, but even the same material as the whole rest of that pedestal. It's like you've just got the base of that that pedestal behind him, right? Looks like there's a rug on it. Yeah, no, he's yeah. He does have. He does seem to have a little uh, mat Some to sit cushion. on. Yeah, yeah, which doesn't look cushiony so much as to prevent it being so cold. Perhaps I would think because I mean it looks like marble, <laughs> and just sitting on a slab of marble, you know, it's got to be chilly on the first, tush after a first while. First thing in the morning, especially that little yeah, thing exactly. where you're sure your trousers don't meet. Ah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's like um, getting in my car at night. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's that's just it. That's just it. Um but uh but anyway, it's so it's it's it, like the whole theme of the outdoor throne here. I mean, it's clearly a throne. Though notice there are no armrests either. I mean, this is very unchair-like, you know? I mean, the whole thing makes, is not very chair-like. It makes makes you wonder how long his audiences are because judging by the the how comfortable this throne might be you get the feeling it isn't very long that's why it's not so dangerous to be out here in the open yeah 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 also something i didn't notice notice there's um at either side of this dais over here there's the river right below it utterly utterly yeah. defensible 
yeah, he's he's got a little moat, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's on yes. private mode. It's true so, yeah, that it's, this it's, is a. It's protected. It, it is protected. It's not a very. Uh, it's not a very vulnerable position, despite being out in the middle of nowhere or in the middle of everywhere, mm-hmm. rather, um, <laughs> out uh, out in the open here. Really interesting. Yeah, uh, Fred Rock Paper says I feel like the throne is more of a display case than a seat. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it is almost like a display. Um, and again, so Dwellin is, of course, standing there in front of it, which, again, having looked a little more carefully at his seat, it's not hard to imagine why he would spend a significant portion of his time standing. That would not be a very comfortable seat to sit in for long periods of time. However, um, I'm imagining, I'm trying to imagine him sitting. Yes. If we imagine him sitting... And just like the whole, I'm like the whole table, the whole his structure. Feet would be, his feet would be sticking out like a teddy bear on a chair. It's very low, even for a dwarf, right? I mean, look at the 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 bottom of the the dip in the seat is comes up to what like mid calf on him. It's mm-hmm. like, but look how far back you know, it goes. It's a little bit higher. Yeah, maybe to the back of his knees. But it's still a pretty low seat. For a dwarf. Not for a dwarf, probably. Hang see, on. now we got to see if there's any seated dwarves around here. <laughs> well, Get an idea of how I, low their chairs are. Well, here's what I'm trying to do right now. What I'm trying to do right now is figure out how far would I have to be up before I could see his head if he were sitting down. Hmm. Let's see from here. Oh, I can't oh, see anything. Notice they got the got the seven mountains on top of that throne. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Right there. So this, I'm coming to the first person point of view. All right. So from here, I can see Dwellin standing, but I'm mm-hmm. like trying to like imagine Dwellin sitting down. Right. So from here, you could just see the head and shoulders. If he were sitting, you could just see his head and shoulders as sort of part of that. And it would be kind of... Okay, so you see the, the sort of rounded like diamond shapes or triangle shape there, like with the slopes on the corners there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hershey Kisses looking things. Yeah. Okay, so I, you could just make out that someone was there, that you couldn't really see him, and then you come to the bottom of the stairs... And he's invisible now. And as you come up, mm-hmm. you just see the... You First you see the mountains, right? That tableau that we've seen on, this, on the doors and things. And now you can yep. see him. You can, you'll be able to see his head and shoulders more clearly. And then as you approach now, he's going to disappear again. I can barely see Dwalin's standing head from here. Right then as you approach up the top of the second ramp, now he appears seated... In his, like you know, sort of the 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 fullness of him. In other words, I get, th- I'm th- I'm sort of following up that display case mm-hmm. comment, right? Oh, all above him. Suddenly, when translated, that he is, yeah, he is part of the scenery. 
Mm. in a sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, Edith, I was wondering about that too. My, my, when I saw the roundedness of that, my very first thought was, is that just like the seat's been worn away over time, like you do see in, mar- like especially in marble steps, if you go to like medieval castles and things. Um, but stone is scone. <laughs> right, exactly. I don't think so. I think this is. First of all, you can see the lines there that it definitely seems to have been carved and it's too sharp. Um, and also it just, it hasn't had enough time. I mean, it's only been decades that this has been here and Thorin's prior to Dwalin, Thorin's was the only tush to sit in that seat. This was a, this was custom made for Thorin and not, uh, not a, uh, um, not a, uh, an ancestral seat yeah, or something like that. So has, has anyone translated the Kudzul above it? Yeah. That's a great question. Oh, Katriana. Yeah. Uh, the draperies, you're right. They don't have any obvious point of attachment. Well, there is like a kind of a crease there. Maybe they're like stuffed Looks down like part there. of an altar. It does almost look like an altar. I mean, it's it it's really interesting, Katriana, because it's the only fabric in sight. I mean, other than people's clothes, but apart from banners. people's clothes, right? But I can't see them from here. Where are the banners? They're down next, there from the other side. You side. can see them. No, no, right next to us on either side. Where? If you, you, can, oh, you can't oh, see it here. It I, I like can't see it from here. Right, okay, right, right, right. I mean, I knew they were around. I was seeing them before. Okay, yeah. right, there they are. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, but, um, but yeah, but nothing nothing here, right? Nothing, nothing yeah. right around the throne. And it's... It does look a little bit like an altar cloth. Spiritual cushions, yeah. When I was standing around here, I was saying, yeah, that, that carpet down there is the only other fabric mm-hmm. that I can see. There's very little decoration with fabric, apart from the banners. Um, and banners are kind of a slightly different category that we shouldn't take that for granted. I mean, it would not be at all strange for dwarves to be like, fabric banners are for losers, right? We, we carve that <laughs> stuff into stone, thank you very much. Um, a little hard to take it into battle. <laughs> well, that's called a shield, never mind. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um... Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I do find these white cloths, which do remind me of altar cloths, um, strange. Strange. Unexpected. A very unexpectedly soft touch. Soft because it messes up with the it messes up the lines. I mean, so much of the rest of the artistry of Thorns, it's all about like the clean lines and 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 clear angles, right? And then we've got these. Notice the cods aren't lying straight. I mean, they're they're like a little bit crooked. Not to mention they're not smoothed out. They're a little wrinkled. It's just yeah. different. Very different. 
It's almost Very like strange. they're. It almost looks like they're relics or something. They're being displayed like relics. Like we're not. Yeah, we don't almost. Really... Yeah, yeah, it does make you wonder if there's like a history to those, right? Is there? Are they there? Does, does that mean something? Is it you made know? from the mantles of the dwarves who first carved this throne, or the, the right, what they were wearing they... when they first came here? Yeah, like woven from the beards of I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's really. It, I know Ew. it's a little strange. I know, but you know, I'm just trying to think of some kind of significance, right? Um, it's um, it's strange. Now that's interesting. Fred Rock Paper says they kind of look like little waterfalls off of rock cliffs. Hmm. I I think they look like tallets, like you. Like you'd have an Orthodox Jewish tradition. Yeah, they remind me of that too. They got the knotted, they got the knotted tassels on. They do kind of look like Dwellin's beard, and I have to say, those two things together make me think a lot of Moria. That is, waterfalls and beards looking alike. Um. It is interest. It is interesting to think forward to that, um, Fred Rock paper. Uh, you know, it's like if this were Moria, there would be waterfalls coming out on either side of the uh, of the of of the throne. But we're just going to kind of recall waterfalls. Um. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Well, there's a lot more. Hang on a second. I've never looked carefully at what on earth is Dwalin wearing? What kind of like weird like corset thing is he? Like, what is that? All those leather straps. That's like Lulu from Final Fantasy. <laughs> yeah, it's like suspenders Number gone 10. mad. I mean,. That's Maybe it's very... a back support. You, you tighten the belt because you need different support on different vertebrae. <laughs> right, you can see him like adjusting it in all kinds of different places. His truss, exactly. Edith. Yeah, exactly. He's wearing a yeah, truss. Yeah, he's had to sit on rock all day. Come on, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's not as young as he used to be, right? I love that he has his beard tucked into his belt. That's just delightful. You can um, guess how many times he's caught it on something before he just... But, ah, forget it. And just shoved it in there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And of course, it's just a you know very noteworthy. Dwalin is not in his own personal presence. He is not making any pretense towards lordship here, right? No. I mean, even leaving his slightly strange leather truss aside, um, you know, his pants, his boots. His quilted tunic he's wearing there, his like leather arm guards, you know, his, he, you know, he's got no hat or helm of any kind. He's not carrying anything. There's no symbol of authority associated with him at all. I mean, if you met him just walking down the road outside, you know, like, like on the road to Gondaman or something like this, he would look like a kind of low-class traveler, right? I mean... He look, He looks like he just came off a construction site. Yeah. It, it easily would fit in somewhere like that. Um, 
he's standing there. His physical posture, his body language suggests a kind of authority, right? Standing there with his hands on his hips, kind of looking around, right? With this sort of look like, all right, yeah, I'm kind foreman. of, I mean, he, exactly. I was just thinking he that. He like does look like a construction foreman. Absolutely. Um, so it's not that he has no gravitas. It's not that he doesn't, you know, it's like, I'm not trying to suggest that he's taking his uh, position of delegated authority seriously, but he is obviously not letting it go to his head. No. And that itself is interesting. I mean, and if we look, I mean, even the guards are are dressed way more fancy than he is. I mean, they've got armor, which, of course, you know, you would. But it's not just armor. It's like fancy armor. I mean, they've got gold filigree and all kinds of things. Can't really see the design on the chest. But uh, uh, because of the beards. But that's okay. That's their look. Um, but yeah, Dwalin is just a, a very stark contrast to them. Um, you can see it over here. It's the it's the intricate leaf design. Wait, which one? Where can you see it? Down here at the bottom of the ramp. Wait, on his chest? Uh, inter- yes, on his chest. Okay, it's yeah, just over there on the side we can see we can see some of mm-hmm. those. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um. Anyway, cool. This guy's well, beard shorter. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Okay, so we'll resume here or near here next week. We'll come back to the hall. Um, we'll look at the kind of ancillary working and living quarters next time, and of course the forges, <laughs> the biggest Yay! room uh, in the in the city. Even well, longer anyway than this. Maybe about the same square footage as this. Uh, part of the city here. Um, but we'll look at that. We'll see if we can get through the rest of it next week. Of course, there's a downstairs too that we'll have to, we'll have to check out. But Oh yeah. Anyway. And, uh, and a reputation room that might be Landerval only. Ah, right. Right. Of course. All right. Anyway, so awesome. Thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, as we have, uh, expressed, I've been reorienting myself here towards, um, uh, towards Thorin's Gate and uh, trying to imagine it properly. And uh, we'll return here next week. Thanks, everybody. I'll see some of you guys in Texas next week. Uh, but everybody else will be back next Tuesday. So thanks, everybody. Bye. Good night. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.